This podcast episode is brought to you by Paleo Valley's Organic Extra Virgin Olive Oil. Now, we all know that many olive oils are cut with seed oils or that they are rancid, and so it's not always easiest to find a quality and properly sourced olive oil. Yes, in case you didn't know, many store bought olive oils are diluted or blended, compromising both taste and quality, and may even cause rancidity. I'm really glad that Paleo Valley's extra virgin olive oil remains pure and unadulterated, sourced from a single organic valley in Greece. Paleo Valley ensures freshness and nutrient content by packaging their olive oil in dark glass bottles. At a certain point, I stopped using extra virgin olive oil, but once our practice started working with people with chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS, we started recommending it for the reduction of TGF beta 1. It is an immune system marker that shows inflammation both for COVID 19, SIRS, and actually many other illnesses. So if your TGF beta 1 is high, you may want to try incorporating a little bit of extra virgin olive oil. Make sure to check it out. It comes in a two pack package. And remember, All Paleo Valley products are guaranteed with a money back guarantee. Go to paleovalley.com slash nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. While you're here, please make sure to like and subscribe. If you're listening to this on podcast, please make sure to leave a review as this allows my content to get in front of more people. My name is Judy Cho and I am board certified in holistic nutrition. I focus on root cause healing and oftentimes that starts with the carnivore cures meat only elimination diet. I'm excited to share this interview with you today. I sat down with Dr. Gary Fetke. If you have not heard of Dr. Gary Fetke, he is a legendary resource that is really all things about low carb. In our conversation, Dr. Gary Fetke talks about his trial for recommending low carb to his patients that are about to get their foot amputated for、um, diabetic complications. He talks about how our nutrition recommendations came into place, our medical system, and we talk about so many different things. This conversation is so important that I decided it to make it two parts. The first part will really talk about the history and how we came to believe that. For example, why breakfast is the most important meal and how plant based became the recommended diet from the Seventh day Adventist. The second part will then talk about nutrition specifics, including fructose and glucose, what the thresholds are for each individual person, what fructose does in our body, and what it is to eat a nutrient dense diet. Dr. Gary Fetke is an orthopedic surgeon, a cancer survivor, and an environmentalist. Dr. Fetke is located in Tasmania, Australia. And he has a major interest in the preventative medicine space, and he encourages his patients to lose weight before undergoing any surgery. Dr. Fedke believes that most people can avoid surgery if they try alternative and preventative measures, which includes diet. In recent years, Dr. Fedke has focused on the role of diet in the development of diabetes, obesity, and cancer. Dr. Fedke speaks out on the combined role of sugar, fructose, refined carbohydrates, and polyunsaturated fatty acids. Linking together behind the scenes to cause inflammation and modern disease. 
you don't want to miss this discussion as we get into so many nuances of why low carb works. And not only that, but why we came to believe that a high carb diet or a low fat diet is the way we're supposed to eat, as well as where we get our recommendations for dietetics. I will eventually have his wife, Belinda, on as she's done so much research into how a lot of our nutrition and the dietitians have been funded by the corporate food conglomerates. Let's get right into the interview. Hi, Dr. Gary Fecky. I'm so excited to chat with you. So many of the carnivore community just has so much respect for you and they were telling me to interview you. So I'm so excited to chat with you. For the people that are listening and watching that may not have heard of you yet, if you can introduce yourself. Well, good morning. Good afternoon, I think, isn't it? I think it's early morning here and mid-afternoon in Texas. The I'm in Tasmania, so that little island off the bottom end of Australia. A long way from the rest of you guys, which is actually um, nice because uh, I was allowed to have independent thoughts rather than completely uh, been falling for mainstream for a long period of time. I've often introduced myself as a happily married father of three seemingly well-adjusted children, and uh, I think I wrote a letter to the editor saying, you know, once uh, I thought I was part, I was normal, but in fact now I find out I'm quite unique just to be in that uh, small isolated group. So look, I'm, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, been practicing that for over 30 years, and really getting frustrated with the fact that we're actually looking at just band-aiding sick care over a long period of time. So, you know, I'm operating on arthritic joints, patients who are too heavy uh, for their joints, too inflamed for their joints, metabolically unwell, so they're too inflamed for surgery. And so for a long period of time, I've been looking at the preventative health aspect of medicine. So um, 30 years ago, I wouldn't operate on smokers for major elective surgery. And everyone said, you can't do that. And I said, look, actually, here's here's the early literature saying smoking's bad for healing, smoking's bad for outcomes anesthesia and all that, all which is mainstream. But I can guarantee 30 years ago, I was in trouble with my colleagues and I had a filing cabinet you know, rather than a, you know, a file on a computer, but I had a filing cabinet full of papers ready to be sued for actually taking a stand on preventative health. Where that's come along in orthopedics and particularly for, you know, where, where we're talking about nutrition now is that over a long period of time, I became the, the surgeon for looking after diabetic foot complications, lower limb complications. And, and I also did a lot of infection work. So if you had an infected joint replacement, they'd literally come along to my clinics on a Friday in the public system. And I ended up, my clinics ended up being called Fetke's Effed Up Fructose Free Fungating Foot Folly Fridays. I don't know what the effed up meant, okay, but anyway, but it literally, if you had a disaster patient, and I, I, I very happily, my registrars, you know, would send them to me for, you know, what, what are the final options that can be done here? And I've actually got a, a golden toilet brush, which my registrars gave me, because I got to clean up all that mess on, and so I had proudly have that in my office, you know, sitting behind me. With them. Now, what that means is that a lot of times I had those end-stage infections, end-stage diabetic complications, and I'd be trying to manage them and realise and we're losing. So I, I, the answer to diabetes is not to actually, you know, be trimming off toes and feet and amputating and, and cleaning up. The answer to diabetes is actually to go back to metabolic health and to go back to you know, the origins of it, which is nutrition. You know, not this is we're talking type two. You know, type one, I've got some theories about that being that the rising incidence is probably related to diet, but the management is going to still be diet, but not cure. So the turning point for me was I had a patient that was poorly controlled in hospital. Can't remember exactly, but I already amputated one leg or I was about to amputate one leg and we we're talking about amputating the second leg. 
And I looked at what he was eating and he was eating ice cream. And as it turned out, he was having ice cream three times a day in hospital as part of the hospital food recommendations. And it had been advised that, yeah, that's okay. Just keep having your, your sugar, having keep having your ice cream. Now, this is about 12 years ago. So again, before sugar was completely being demonized. And I just said, would you just stop doing that? said to the patient, stop doing it. Then I looked at it and he said, no, it's on the menu. And then I looked at the menu, looked at the guidelines, tried to have a civil discussion with the dietitian's department. And most people don't believe that it was actually civil at the beginning, but I actually start. And then I started looking at sugar and I went to the dietitians and the head of the dietitian's department said, hey, look, this is really interesting stuff. This is the biochemistry of fructose. So we're about 2010, 2011 then when a fellow by the name of Luke Tappy from Switzerland described the metabolism of fructose. It's a definitive paper, a real landmark paper. I said, hang on, this is really interesting stuff. Do you realize what fructose is doing? This is even before I started understanding the effects of glucose and, and more sugar. And they just ignored me and said, look, you're crazy. And anyway, so around about that time, Belinda, my wife said, hey, you've got all this knowledge and it's really important. Why don't you get on this thing called Facebook and social media? I haven't forgiven her for it yet. And we published a website, which is somewhat out of date, but the information is still all, all relevant, called nofructose.com. The long and short of within 48 hours, someone who was working for the sugar sweetened beverage company, the big one, uh, was starting to attack me. And so it was just fascinating, just going onto social media. So this is a difference in that if you've got a media personality saying, okay, sugar's bad and you've got to eat healthy, or you're selling a book or something like that, then you might have a vested interest. Here it was, I was a surgeon from his heart saying, sugar's bad, I'm getting sick and tired of amputating because of sugar. And that became real, and as a result of that, I came under more and more attack because I've got a real story, and that real story became more powerful. The more I came under attack, then the more I researched it, and the more I became you know, I became a mature-aged biochemistry student. Culminating, you know, to cut a long story short, and that I was reported three times to the medical board for giving nutritional advice. The medical board investigated me and the one question that I was actually asked by the medical board verbally in a final face-to-face, I'd like to say meeting confrontation, was Dr. Fetke, do you believe that advising your patients to reduce sugar is specific nutritional advice? And I said yes. And then I was put under the hammer. I was charged, or not charged, but I was you know, given a finding that, that I was to be silenced whenever giving nutritional advice. I ended up going through three Senate inquiries back to the National Ombudsman. It took five and a half years. My story very much mimicked Tim Noakes's in South Africa. Tim's case was very public. Mine was behind closed doors. It's a star chamber court examination in, in Australia. It's completely archaic. And Tim and I are great friends as a, you know, as a result of that shared ordeal. Now, he was actually the very first person that I rang after Belinda, or Belinda was with me, when I got cleared. In the process of that, lots of things unfolded. Like Belinda was saying, Tim, myself, others are talking about the science, the biochemistry. And she, she said, she's not a biochemist. She's a nurse by profession originally. She said, you can, I believe you guys. So there's something else going on. So her work has actually gone back to try and find out where the vested interests were. And as it turns out, going backwards, the expert witness that was that literally appeared in my case was working for a breakfast cereal company at that time. Belinda tried to reach out to him, but he just ignored that. And as time's gone on, delving down into that and the internal documents and the internal emails from the cereal industry here in Australia and New Zealand actually had in 2014 that cereal sales were down because of the concepts of low-carb paleo, not keto at that time, but low-carb, and these seven people are to be targeted. And I was the only Australian doctor on that list. 
So this is billion-dollar industries that have internal emails with my name on it saying we're to be targeted. And as it turns out, they were in a paid paid relationship with a dietitian's association here in Australia to promote the benefits of sugar and cereal to the population. And that one same group, so they only paid one group. We've got the receipt for it. They only paid one group to be. So the dietitians here in Australia, they're the ones that were involved in writing the dietary guidelines for the last 30 years, you know, preparing the material. But they were being paid to promote the benefits of sugar and cereal. And as it turned out, dietitians on the three occasions were the ones that were reporting me to APRA, to the medical board. So we've, we've got the paper trail and the money trail backwards from the food industry losing money back to paying dietitians to actually do reporting. We've got the press, you know, the people they were contacting in the press who were writing bad articles about me, you know, in the national press, not just local press, national press. And we've got the expert witness who was working for the cereal industry at the time, who was the same person who has actually been writing the textbooks for the dietitians along a vegan, vegetarian, pro-carbohydrate, anti-meat agenda. So I, can't, I can't make this stuff up, you know, because if, I, if, I, if I'm lying, then, I, then I'm liable. You know? And along the way, we've named everyone, and I've actually done that under Senate privilege as well. I've actually been able to name the CEOs of all those serial companies because of what there was in their internal emails. What was really interesting, and I think that probably about 2018 now, I lose track of the years a bit that I'm getting old. But I presented that material to a Senate inquiry uh, about, and they, they rang me up and said, you've named the CEOs of these cereal industry people. I said, that's fine. I'm naming them because I've got the documents to say that what they did. And they said, you realise you have to con- we now have to contact them because that's only fair game because it's a Senate inquiry. So that's fine. And they all, they all had the opportunity to respond to my allegations. Anyway, none of them responded under parliamentary privilege. But six weeks after I pre- submit, submitted that documentation, the there was a formal separation of the processed food industry from the Dietitians Association here in Australia. So I don't think I'm the only one there, but I think we, that might have been a final catalyst to say, actually, you, you're now caught out. We've actually got the, the specific financial ties between the processed food industry and the people developing the dietary guidelines, which are mimicked around the world. And I don't, I don't think for one minute this is unique in Australia. We just got the documents that are telling, promoting the benefits of sugar and cereal to the wider population. Which is just, you know, as it turns out, biochemically, it's a total disaster. And now we know, you know, physiologically, environmentally, and, and you know, humankind is, is getting fatter and sicker despite these these guidelines. So, I mean, that's a long, short summary. So I've now been cleared. It was really important that my, my case was cleared, Tim's was cleared, Annika Dahlquist in Sweden was cleared, because this means that in some in Western medical health circles, we are now allowed to talk about nutrition. And literally it opened the floodgates for you know, many doctors, many healthcare professionals, many dietitians who believe in this, many nutritionists to actually say, okay, I can talk about this now because sure. I'm not going to come under, be reprimanded by the system. We didn't mean to go through it, but we had to win. We just had we had to win our legal cases to allow people to start talking about it, to get their health back. And that seems crazy, and, and, and but... Yeah, I, I was just doing what I thought needed to be done. Belinda was supporting me, and that we didn't mean to become centerpieces of of, of the defence of this topic. What's but yeah, here we are. Right, and um, that's an incredible story. What's interesting is in medical school, from my understanding, it's always do no harm. And if you find that nutrition, which feeds our body and will either support it or hurt it. And if we understand that it's amazing that you are not allowed to speak about nutrition other than these other reasons. And I'm glad that you and Belinda were able to find all these underlying motives that we all assume, but we don't always have all the evidence, like especially in the US. 
But oftentimes these regulating bodies. We've, we've, we've got quite a bit of evidence for out of the US about even the last lot of dietary guidelines being completely manipulated by industry. Right. Uh, so it, it's not even hard to find. Right. You've got the Sunshine Act in, in the US, which means that everyone has to declare their conflict of interest, really declare right. their conflict of interest. Whereas in Australia, we don't. It's much harder to find this stuff, but it, it's completely conflicted. Yes. So I wanted to ask you in with your patients. So once you started figuring out that nutrition can actually do a big part in the healing that you don't have to amputate, how many people did you start just recommending the nutritional recommendations and not having to do some of the surgeries? Oh, all of them. You know, so the, the, the low, the, you know, the, the term, the low hanging fruit of those with diabetes. Right. And often I can remember there was a young guy, uh, he would have been in his 40s, who's coming along to me with, you know, numb feet, couldn't, you know, no sensation, peripheral neuropathy, um, already, you know, losing his mind, his bit of early dementia, had a heart attack and a stroke, you know, in his, in his early 40s. And I can still remember his, his three-year-old daughter on the floor drawing some artwork whilst he's in the outpatients department, you know, just and his wife was there and I because, you know, this is a crisis. I said, mate, you've got it. This, so he got both barrels. I, you know, really the big talk, and uh, because everything I was saying was going against every other doctor in that there was getting in the in the hospital. All of nutritional advice, his GP advice, and I said to him, if you want to see your daughter, I was really moved by it. I said, if you want to see your daughter, you're going to have to listen to me. I know there's all this other stuff going on, but just please listen to me. Anyway, he came back two weeks later because we were just seeing everything in follow-up. Um, his wife wasn't with him. His daughter wasn't with him. And he and he said, look, I've listened to you, Doc. I believe you. My wife thinks you're really arrogant, and so she wouldn't come back. But I've been doing what you t- said for two weeks, and my blood sugars are the best I've been controlled in years. My GP says that I'm crazy. My the other specialist team, she said, are, are ready to disown me. But I'm going to stick with you because I haven't seen this control ever. Right. And that's in two weeks. And and by the way, his feet look better. Mm. You know, just in literally two weeks. Now, unfortunately, that those people with end stage diabetes who are coming along with a peripheral neuropathy and peripheral ulceration and requiring part amputation, and here's a horrible statistic, but you know, if you require an amputation of your leg for diabetes, the median survival time after that is less than three years. Wow! So it's a death sentence. It's not. It's not. You're not going to die because of the amputation bar complications, but it is evidence of so much microvascular disease, so much peripheral disease. That it is it literally it's an you know, it's an end stage condition. So those people who come along to me at that point in time, it's too late right. to turn everything around. However, we can pr- improve outcomes, and most of these people are dependent on the family around them. So therefore, it's okay. We can we can you know, their family's doing the shopping, and the family is the future. And often diabetes is called familial, but it's not so much because of genetics, it's because of lifestyle. So there was a lot of time spent on the family to actually A, help the patient, but B, help them. And uh, often often the public hospital system is is at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. But doing low carb and keto is not expensive because it's about eating, and I'll come back to it, I've rewritten the dietary guidelines, again, arrogance, but nonetheless, I've had to come up with a catchphrase. We need to eat fresh, local, seasonal, whole food based on our culture and environment, reducing added sugar and processed food. If if you take that apart, I've actually just described low carb. If you do it really hardcore, it's called keto. But effectively, reducing sugar and carbs will have a dramatic improvement on health, but particularly with diabetes. And and if you 
and I got into trying one of the times I was reported the medical board is because I was I inappropriately reversed someone's diabetes on on national TV. But we did. We got him off. Got, his diabetes was essentially put into remission, and he came off six other medications, and literally just over a period of several weeks. Uh, and you can actually do that in. I think you can do that within a week. But I think arguably you can do it in one weekend. I've reversed someone's diabetes in one weekend with a bit of education, supervision, one of those glucose monitors on his arm. So he had instant feedback about what's going on. And so those things just should become part of preventative. You know, if you get diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, you should be given the option of low carb. You don't have to do it. You're given the option of education. And you should have a CGM placed on your arm. And within two weeks, people will work out because they last for two weeks. Within two weeks, you'll actually have it completely under control if the person's sensible about it and they're getting the right advice. I believe there was a recent approval of allowing, I think it was the American Heart Association or maybe it was the Diabetic Association, but they said that low carb is a viable diet to reduce diabetes and it's finally released in the US. So that was a really, really good thing. Uh, With a a caveat on that. Okay. uh, Because... there's been a lot of work done to try and get that involved. Right. But here in Australia, it says, but only for six months. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Which is because it's only been beneficial for six months, which is still complete. You know, I can use the term BS and nobody will, you know, it's just. <laughs> but the defense has to come down because you, know, you, you can't. There's, there's over 100 papers on this now showing the benefits of low carb in diabetes outcome. The, the wall, and that's the one where we're pushing because it's the most obvious. It's the one you can see an instantaneous result turn around within days. You know, doing low carb and keto has benefits and, you know, for metabolic health and people will feel better and you can actually prove it biochemically. But diabetes control is a, you get a daily measure or an hourly or minute by minute measure and you can just see that straight away. And I think it's indefensible that the medical profession are not prescribing diet type. Uh, low carb or lowering carbohydrate in diabetes management. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not alone in that statement now. There's a, uh, Again, Tim Noakes, I think, was the first person who put it out. So it is now, you know, you, you should, you know, we're on the attack now. If you're a doctor and you're not recommending low carb, I now think you're negligent. And my, you don't. My, my mother was diabetic and um, I was it was before I ever got into nutrition for my own health. But so they put her on metformin and other diabetic medications, and they wanted her to go through education. And she was part of the big PPOs, HMOs, and they taught her eat whole grains, eat lots of fruit, but all of those things still made her blood sugar go up. And it was only until she ate a heavy meat based diet and just cut out the carbs to make it really simple that now she's on no diabetic medication. And there was all these other issues that she had like dermatitis, um, asthma in the middle of the night, waking up all all of that was gone and never once did she think that was diabetic related. She thought it was old age. And now at the age of 70, zero medications. It's a bad business model, right? For the pharma company. She doesn't go to the doctors. Oh. Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. (laughs) 
Well, you know, I, I go on about this topic. I said we, it's not we don't have a health system; we have a sickness industry, and, and it's not in the interests of you know. And, and holistically, we're supposed to go okay, preventative healthcare, blah blah blah. But there's no money in it. I, it takes time. It take to actually have this explanation and discuss it with patient by patient takes time. That time is not remunerated very well, and they, they don't they don't come back because they're getting better. So it's not surprising that what we're talking about meets resistance in the in the in the mainstream media I, we did this you know low carb on on air with one of the radio announcers here locally and i got him to eat well he was eating a, a, a salad roll one day and a, a, the same salad the following day but without the roll mm. and his blood sugar was you know just flatlined with the salad but with the you know the, the grain bread roll and he won one morning on radio he got on and he said i'm just going to eat a nine grain bread you know you know one of those you know, right. super healthy it didn't name the brand or anything like that and just had two slices of it on air and his blood glucose raced up he actually right. said i feel terrible right. you know and essentially it's live stream facetime you know just and anyway within two hours the bread advertise the bread companies were on giving the the radio station a hard time saying pull that program otherwise we take away our advertising program pulled or taken down because advertising dollars right so we so that's just that's factual local but this happens at a global scale, you know. If you know, you look at the amount of television. I know I've been in the US. You know, look at the amount of pharmaceutical industry just advertising. This is bottom dollar stuff. So therefore, the only reason our message is getting out is that the results are better on the whole. No, no, this, I'm not saying it's going to cure absolutely everyone. You know, and I get I've, one. I got one of the times I got reported. The medical board said that I actually said I'm going to cure cancer. But no, I've never said that. Find the point in time. Find the sound bite where I've said that I will cure cancer. I've never said it. I think there's a role for ketogenic diets and sure. reduced insulin and low carbon in, in cancer management. I've never said cure. So everything gets twisted. But you know, that, that's the media that's, that's trying to undermine a message of health. But you know, we're not on the take. And so, therefore, you know, that's why you know I'm, I'm having a chat to you. It's you know keep supporting those people who are taking the message into different corners of the world. That's the critical thing. We, uh, because I, I don't ha- we don't we don't have millions of dollars, billions of dollars. We, we've actually you know we've got the account sheets of of the cereal industry, how much they're spending on advertising and how much they're spending on health promotion. And it, you know it's scary, but they've got a message. I, here's here's how how entrenched the freaking system is. I, I think we've got the cereal industry, and I don't try. I, I'm not particularly picking on them, even though I am. But it's just we've got a lot of information on them because that's where we're able to find it. I think we've got the cereal industry on sugar. You know, sugar's bad. You know, I think we've got them on carbohydrates now. You know, carbs, and there's a talk of mine on YouTube. Carbohydrates, the dose is the poison. I purely did it as an academic exercise to work out what the toxic dose of carbohydrate is, of glucose. And I thought, okay, I don't mind getting into hot water. I thought, oh, this is interesting. I did it from my perspective. I wanted to find it out. So I defined toxicity as having a negative effect on the system, on a system, which is a fair statement. Right. So at what point in time does glucose intake and fructose intake have on a negative effect on the system? As my argument was it was one teaspoon, four grams. So four grams actually starts to have a negative effect on the glycocalyx, which is the lining of the blood vessels, has an insulin effect, which has a is you know, fat deposition, pro-growth hormone, 
cancer and inflammation. So four grams became the number. Anyway, so I think, you know, we look at the biochemistry, carbohydrate in excess, and I'm calling a small amount in excess, has a negative effect on the impact. So I think with cereal industry, we've got them on sugar, we've got them on carbs. So their last bastion of defense is to keep talking about fiber because it's got fiber in it. Oh, you've got to have fiber, you've got to have fiber, which is a whole nother house of cards ready to tumble down when you talk about fiber. But here in Australia, two years ago, deputy or Minister of Health came out with a public a media release, big thing, media release, talking about the benefits of fibre and how Australians need to eat more fibre by in the form of cereal. When you get to the bottom of the media release, this is a, a, a federal government media release, it was written by Kellogg's. So we've got our media releases on health for the Minister of Health's office, their federal message written by Kellogg's. Is, are we not and, and it's talking about the benefits of fiber i mean i actually think that it's a death throw right. you know when they're getting to that desperation but let's call them out for it right yeah. and we did but that that's the important that and whilst we still have some access to social media and it's not right. completely censored as time goes on we have to call out those really frankly obvious conflicts of interest. Absolutely. So I was doing a um, a little research piece on, you know, where do we get the idea of um, breakfast is the most important meal of the day? And if you do the research, it's from Kellogg. <clears throat> it's from the Kellogg company because they wanted to have us all eat breakfast. Um, I guess prior to Kellogg, everyone, what whoever ate breakfast, it was whatever was left over from dinner. And that's what people would eat for breakfast. Maybe it was some eggs, bacon, et cetera. But once Kellogg, they made this idea that breakfast is the most important meal, which is from Kellogg, it just shows you how pervasive. Well, it was actually from Ellen G. White, who was the prophetess of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Right, right. But I thought it was with um, the Kellogg person. Oh, yeah, there were, yeah, Kellogg's. And then Lena Cooper was also a promoter of that one. And she was working with Kellogg's and she was the right. first. She set up the American Dietetics Association in October 23, 1917. So uh, it, Essentially, if we have a belief, then it's really important to work out where that belief comes from. Because if it's not based on science, it's not, right. as it turns out, it, it, all this stuff, breakfast doesn't have to be in the morning. It's breaking your fast. You can do it. Yeah. Belinda has, has forever broken her fast at lunchtime. And I used to say, look, your breakfast is the most important middle of the day. You've got to have your breakfast. Here I am having my cereal and, you know, and a bit of fruit and a bit of whole grain bread, you know, and, and I was, and a little bit of chocolate, but I was 20 kilos, you know, 45 pounds heavier. But I'd say, you've got to have breakfast. And Belinda's health was perfect. And still I forced her to start having some breakfast and she got a bit, you know, just got a little bit unwell. It's all there in history. So I call that generational education. And again, there's a, a talk on, I, I keep coming back to YouTube because it's easier to put that talk on YouTube because I can put the visuals with it, give the story, people allocate 20, 25 minutes and you'll get the stories from my work, Belinda's work, because I think it's often better to use pictures just certainly with the biochemistry and pathways and trying. One of the things I got accused of by the medical board was actually making the situation too simple. I said, my, my job is to actually explain things in terms which people can actually understand. And I'm going, but that's my job. That's what I'm supposed to do. You know, I, I had to defend my job of actually communicating and health education needs to be aimed at a 10 year old at a health literacy rate. Have you you've heard of that? Yes. And it's also no use, it's not at a high academic level. You've got to aim your message at a 10 year old for, for understanding. And I'm not trying to dumb down patients. I'm just saying that's where your message has got to be. So, so my lectures are not for 10 year olds. I call them for the interested lay person or the introduction for the medical they're there and then off you go and explore from there. So 
if it's not about the science, you've got to work out where it came from sure. and therefore you've got to go back in history. And I call that generational education. So I believe my teachers because they must know. And I and <clears throat> you believe your textbooks because it's in the textbook. Right. And you've got to re- and the references are there and because it's in the textbook. It's all there. And the same but if you start going back in time, that time frame between nineteen ten and nineteen seventeen, absolutely critical for medical education. So the American Dietetics Association formed 1917. The next 40 years of textbooks are written by Leonard Cooper, which then formed the basis of textbooks for the American Dietetics Association, the Canadian, the British, the, um, the South African, the Australian, and the New Zealand. Just you know, they literally that model and those textbooks became that's nutrition. Right. However, if you go back to those textbooks written by Leonard Cooper, who had been you know, heavily influenced in working with Kellogg's, are vegan, vegetarian, anti-meat. We've got we've got some textbooks. We've got a couple of them from the 1920s, early 1920s, <clears throat> readily available. Just get on, you know, Amazon and um, uh, A Books, and you can get hold of these books. In fact, you know, strangely enough, um, a, a present I gave to Belinda was to actually find, you know, Ellen G. White's writings, you know, as a 20 volumes of of them. Forget giving Belinda flowers. If you give her research <laughs> material, she loves it. So that, that 1917, critical time in nutrition. We'll go backwards and forwards from there. Come, come, come. Sure. But in medicine, 1910 was the commissioning of the Flexner Report by Carnegie and Rockefeller. So at that point in time, we had a big influence of holistic healthcare, naturopathy, and, 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 and but what happened was the Flexner Report was commissioned and ended up closing, I think, around about 50 medical schools in the US and Canada. And as a result of that, you had the birth of the model of to medicate and to Operate. That's what I and I, I also say the birth of the model of medical education, which is read, repeat, reward. <clears throat> read the textbook, repeat it. Medical career. Follow the guidelines. Don't question anything. And again, birth of the pharmaceutical industry and the modern hospital institution. So that that as a result. We've got a hundred years of influence of the pharmaceutical industry writing our textbooks and the processed food industry writing our nutrition textbooks. And so it's hard to go back and, and not and disbelieve everything you've been taught. But that's 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 what we've done. And then you find out actually everything I've touched is a house of cards, whether or not it's sugar, carbs, fiber, salt, meat being bad. Everything's just a house of cards. It's just fascinating to see how we've gotten it so wrong. Now I understand why we've gotten it wrong because of our education. And so that whole, you know, to go back to the cereal industry, 101 cereal companies formed around from Battle Creek, Michigan, late 1890s to 1905, something like that. Virtually all of them were under the influence of the Seventh-day Adventist origins. Not all of them, but most of them ultimately. So you've actually got to work out why did they invent breakfast cereal. So John Harvey Kellogg invented breakfast cereal. He'd started the Battle Creek, Michigan. Well, he didn't start it, but he, he built the Battle Creek, Michigan uh, hospital so no, sanitarium there, which that sanitarium then formed the basis of all Western major hospitals, that whole big model of big hospitals, multiple levels, multiple people coming in and out of it. It was all based on the Battle Creek Sanitarium. You know, John Harvey Kellogg, brilliant man, just mucked up in his ideas. But then if you work out where his ideas came from, you're not, you're not surprised. So as it turns out, John Harvey Kellogg, as a 12-year-old, went to work for the first family of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, the White family, Ellen G. White as the prophetess. I'm just cutting it all down. Linda's works there. As a 12-year-old, he was typesetting her books, and her first literary work that she was was about the that the most sinful thing is to masturbate. So if you masturbate, you will go on, you'll go to hell for all damnation. So imagine a 12-year-old typesetting in that temperance movement, mid-19th century, that whole 
complete brainwashing. So he, he, he was nurtured through the, the, the LNG White family, became the first medical director of the Battle Creek Sanitarium. He then he set up all of this stuff, but his flow-on effect was that he was brainwashed as a kid. Ended up having eight children through marriage, apparently never consummated his marriage, so they were all adopted. And in the 1890s, he and his brother developed breakfast cereal as a bland food to be served in the Battle Creek, Michigan Sanitarium to quell our lustful thoughts, to stop us from masturbating. And as a result of that, and a whole lot of those theories were there to actually, you know, quell lust for salvation. And that became incredibly influential because that became the, the hospital model for the Western world. It became the dietetics model for the Western world. And that influence, because then became corporate structures there. And the Adventist church were influential to this day. They're the second biggest educator in the world after the Catholic church. They don't bear arms. So they were the conscientious objectors, which likely Ansel Keys was experimenting on with his starvation diets, and he would have had a lot of work. They are the origins of the vegan vegetarian. But today, they effectively own the cereal industry of the world, the soy industry, the commercial processed soy industry, uh, they, the, the fake meat industry. So the nut analogues, the meat analogues, all started by Kellogg's, are heavily involved in the stevia industry. They've got so much money, and in, here in Australia, they don't need to declare it because they're a, chari- they're a church organisation and a charity. They are effectively the cereal industry here in Australia. And so either directly or indirectly, there's an enormous amount of money pushing into the church. The church keep having their message of health reform. Ellen G. White, late 19th century, was saying that health education is the right arm of, the, of, of God. It's a, you know, This is how we're going to get into people's lives. They do a major amount of missionary work. So this whole influence, particularly in the South Pacific, the blue, the, the, the blue continent, I think four or five of the prime ministers of those Polynesian islands are now Seventh-day Adventists. And we've got a push into Polynesia, which are the, the most obese, the highest diabetic rates in the world. Everyone sort of says, oh, we've got the greatest rates of diabetes or the, you know, we're the fattest society. No, the Blue Pacific, nine out of the top ten, the fattest, sickest, most metabolic humble. So we've actually got now a major push into the Polynesian islands of breakfast cereals and taking them away from their traditional diets, which are going to be animal-based because of fishing. And, and number 10 on that list, of, uh, I'm going back two or three years now, was Kuwait. You know why Kuwait's up there with obesity and diabetes? Don't they really like honey? I, I thought it was like they no, like they, to add honey. They, <laughs> they do, but they, they don't have alcohol. So oh, okay. they, they, they drink soft drink. Okay. Sugar, oh, okay. beverages. So it's sort of, I've got this, you know, uh, alcohol embargo, but they have a major influence. So that, that's, and sugar sweetened, uh, you know, soft drinks we call um, uh, soda right. in the US is uh, you know, those populations with higher intakes of that have got significantly greater rates of obesity and ill health. Robert Lustig's obviously done a lot of work on that. Right. So I have a question, um, since we're talking about a lot of this, do you think these people really believe that this bland cereal will fix all the issues that human transgressions, or is it just really money focused? I mean, I know that back in the day, Rockefeller, from my understanding, is that after the war, he had all this petroleum. And so he wanted to switch all the natural or the natural supplements and herbals to now be the pharmaceuticals with petroleum. And so that's where a lot of that school, the medical school changed. And I think that you had just mentioned, but I mean, is it just pure evil? Is it just, is it just money and they don't care if people get sick or is it like a mix of both? 
No, I, I think uh, without being too cynical and uh, uh, too depressing, I, 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 I suffer from hyperpragmatism. Okay. Yeah, so I, I don't, I'm not depressed. I'm just going, okay, well, this is what's going on. Where do you position yourself into it? So that model was started early 20th century, not early 1900s. And when that we had uh, the development of nutrition reviews, the literature, the research, um, the Harvard School of Public Health, all started with processed food money. And so with Rockefeller and Carnegie then supporting education that supported their model, if you wanted to build your university, you'd get, you know, and so many places in the US have got money from the Rockefeller Foundation. still Because they're influencing, continuing that model. Is that evil? Why? Possibly. So, but, and, and that commercial model has, keeps tying in with this religious ideation. So as it turns, I mean, as I, Linda's done a lot of work on this. She's still contacted by people who are part of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, current and ex. Her work's actually been quoted by the Adventists in journals. As She's actually recognised by the Adventist Church as an expert in their work. So her work's actually referenced by them. We had really fell over when we found her that it was referenced. But unfortunately, those people in, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not anti-Adventist, we're not anti-religion, we just, if it's, it's what they're doing with their message. If you, you can have your opinion, you can have your religious ideology, it shouldn't just be forced literally down my throat or down my patient's throat. And they honestly believe that religious salvation and when the world comes around to believing in veganism, that Christ will return. But for, for salvation of 144,000. So they will go to enormous sacrifices personally because in a belief, in a religious ideological belief. So they, they, I don't believe the Adventists are in it for the money. At the highest level, I think they are. They've got this great business model which is going on. But the person on the, on the ground doing the door-to-door work who's now been involved in dietary guidelines and literally, you know, it's, it's not just now, even though we've got them right through the most recent dietetics review in the US, you know, we've got them literally positioned at the highest levels. We've got them positioned at the highest levels within the World Health Organization, involvement in the United Nations, presidents, prime ministers of countries, treasurers of countries. Yeah, this is a small group of people that have been able to move up and whether or not they've been propped up along the way by, but it, they've worked very, very hard for over a hundred years to get themselves into positions of public health because that's the position of our religious salvation for us all. We don't have to, it's, it's, again, it's almost fantastical, but that's what's happened. And it's not a conspiracy if it turns out to happen, you know, that, so that's, that position themselves. And that, I don't think that's evil. These are well-intentioned people who really believe in their product, in their message. They've got this enormous corporate arm behind them, which has continued to make an enormous amount of money and, and vertically integrate themselves from the farming sector through to the production sector, even to the pharmaceutical sector, all owned by the church, not paying, prop, you're not paying taxes. And that, right. uh, that, that is, that's evil. In you know, in whatever term you want to describe it. So you know, is it just evil? No, no, I, I don't. But again, if your livelihood, if your whole social circumstances are based about, and you're a child being brought up in this, it, it's really interesting. A couple of people I've, I've worked with, my surgical assistant was raised in as an Adventist. Oh. We have some amazing discussions. You know, just one of my anesthetists, you know, was raised in as an Adventist, and so it's and and all the stuff about vegetarian veganism being beneficial is actually just because the Adventist church keeps coming out with the same study over and over again. The Adventist health studies, which have well and truly cited 
thousands of times, right. but they're cited by. So if we look up, up on research, and then the number of times it's been you know, there's been a citation. Oh, it's a high citation article. There's only ever been three cita- three Adventist health big health studies, and they've actually citated themselves thousands of times. So that. Again, that that is truly sitting within your echo chamber. That is, you're inside your bubble, saying we have the longest longevity. We have the longest longevity. We have. So if you keep hearing that for decades, and but then you know, I actually took apart those studies and actually found the Mormons live longer, and the Jewish communities in the U.S. were living longer than the Adventists. Mm-hmm. And, but the Adventists actually believe, you know, they, they eat healthy. Even though it's not, it's not no animal based. In there. Don't smoke. Don't drink alcohol. Get exercise, and all of those things are actually healthy things to do. So yeah, a lot, a lot of their stuff's actually quite good. Just that anti-meat, pro-grain, cereal corporatization of our food pyramid is done more harm. I think they call that the healthy user bias, right? Where you grab a amount of people that may eat red meat, well, they're, they tend to be more rebellious since they're not following the standard <laughs> guidelines of dietary recommendations. And so those people also tend to be smokers. Maybe they'll break the rules or laws a little bit more. It's fascinating that you bring up all of this religion because I think when, and I'm a religious person, I'm not a um, Seventh-day Adventist, but <laughs> it's interesting because when you believe in a religion, you have a faith in something that's not really explainable in science or anything like that. And so you kind of blindly believe because that's where you're kind of growing. And so it makes sense why a lot of these recommendations, they truly believe it. They truly believe that if that's the way they're going to go to heaven, or that's the way Jesus will then come Mm. down is if everyone becomes a vegan, I can see why they really push it because they really believe it's the betterment for the general population. But I personally fell into a plant-based diet for 12 years and I struggled with depression and an eating disorder. And out of desperation to be a decent mom to my children, I went meat only and that saved my life. And that saved me from mental health, from taking antidepressants. And I had none of the diabetes issues, but it saved my mental health. And then I got upset because the psychologist said I forever needed to take medication And as I did the research and I see how nutritious meat is, I realized how wrong a lot of the dietetics recommendation is. And so my question to you is, you know, there's definitely a villainization of meat. We just talked offline how GMO cattle has now been approved in America from the FDA. So how do we make sure we have enough resources with meat and we can take care of our families and our own health? Because obviously mainstream or corporate media and pharma and food will not take care of our health. I think if you eat tip to tail, that, that you eat the yes, whole yes. animal and you eat in a, and you understand in a respectful fashion. Now, respect means that respect for the way it's farmed, respect for the way looking after the land, respect for the animal. Now, so I'm not into factory farming. Okay, so and we've got plenty of land to actually farm respectfully. The grasslands, like arable lands, only three or four percent of the of the land mass of the world. Whereas twenty five percent is grasslands, which is actually farmable. Here in Australia, we actually have major bushfires. When in fact, if we actually put some cattle running through that, it'll actually cut the fire risk down. And we just need to change the way we think about it. So. If you eat an animal, particularly tip to tail, and you're eating the organ meats as well, you will have a complete nutritional intake. And I'm all for eating to our nutritional requirements, not to our energy requirements. It is 
truckload of energy out there. So I mean, the classic is people eat a, eat a pizza, it's got all this stuff on top of it, looks great, tastes great, but it's actually nutritionally incomplete. So at the end of it, you're still hungry, so you eat another pizza. Or you've had a night out on the town and you've eaten this, and on the way home, you'll have a kebab and then you'll get home and you'll have ice cream because you're still hungry. Right. You're not hungry for more energy, you're hungry for nutrients. And anybody who's been to a, a Brazilian restaurant where you just it's meat only literally you just you can't eat anymore and, and so that that's because you've you've eaten your protein requirements of which that's the it, it's completely satiety so i oh, so how, how do we do that Look, this is where i think uh, particularly in the world at this point in time if you're privileged enough to have the information about good health by good nutrition and you're in an environment where you can access it and you can afford it, then it's your responsibility to do it. There are enormous amounts of the world population that A, don't have the information because of free speech. And you know, we talk about aid work into Africa where the nut analogues are being pushed as a savior for, for childhood malnutrition. They're the highly processed seed oil foods, which are just being charitably thrown at the Africans, at, at, at the impoverished African nations who are, who are in starvation. And, and that's going to make them sicker. And it's not actually giving them self-reliance on, on their own food systems. It's actually just literally shoving food into the system. So if you're privileged enough to have the information and you're privileged enough to get access to it, and again, there's, you know, we've got war in all sorts of places in the world at the moment where people can't actually get to it. We've got food ghettos within major cities, even in the US and China. You literally can't get access to fresh local seasonal food. So for those people, again, I don't I don't have the answer about apart from the fact that it's hard work. You might want to have more in the way of frozen foods if you can get access to them. But it's my responsibility as a human because I actually live in Tasmania and I've got this, you know, I've got farmland around me. I've got some sheep out there. We had you know wallabies on the lawn last night. You know if things come to a sharp, you know terrible. I could go out and hunt those if I have to. Then 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 that, we will have good health. Uh, when I see people who have the information, who are literally throwing down packets of chips and soft drink and smoking and you know just slothful. And then, then I get frustrated. I don't get angry anymore. I just get frustrated going, actually, you're wasting an opportunity here yes. when you have the opportunity for better health. But then they're actually got also their problem to be in their defense is that they've been advertised to, they've been brainwashed that what they can do is actually okay. And if things get into trouble, then they'll just go along to the doctor and get a medication to sort it all out. So everyone's, we've made things too easy. Easy access to poor quality food, easy access to drugs to try and counteract it. When the obvious answer is, you know, eat well. Often say to patients, you've got two choices. You've got a choice of spent, because people say low carb is expensive or eating meat's expensive. I don't think it is when you actually get your, you don't get the most expensive cuts of meat. And if you get the awful, it's often Cheaper. I'm not saying just eat that, but you, you mix it up. You end up. I have putting a bit of uh, beef heart and liver in with my mince. It's, I call it a super super meatball. It gets you know really really healthy nutritionally. It doesn't. You know, these are cheap cuts of meat. And if you eat, if you're going to eat, and I'm not I'm not an absolute carnivore. I'm probably getting close to it. And we've got our own chicken, so we can have eggs. Eggs are fabulous, by the way. Have you ever thought, how do we ever demonize an egg? You know, an egg, a fertile egg, produces a life form with the same metabolism of us in perfect proportions. You know, it's got everything in it for life itself. 
Sorry, egg, eggs are great. One thing I wanted to say with what you're talking about is so a few things. So I think some of the people, um, just from the experience that I've just suffered from an eating disorder, I know that there are true biochemistry effects of the sugar being addictive, right? And then with the marketing of everyone should live in moderation, live a little, that type of mm. attitude. So then or when the med- we, Mediterranean diet. Yes. Yeah. So while we know maybe eating carbs is not ideal and getting rid of the cereals and the bread, I think for most people now are starting to wake up to that. But it becomes hard when we have this mentality of well, on a birthday, we should celebrate uh, with a birthday cake or um, on a happy hour on Fridays, let's have some nachos or pizza, I don't know what else they eat. And I think it starts becoming more frequent that we eat it and we think but we have to live in real life and have moderation. But some of it is just that we're really addicted. We are so many of our relationships since we're young, we cope with food, right? So when we're upset, we get some ice cream. When we nurse, when we're little, mom gives us the boob or, you know, milk. And, and then as we get older, we, we go to the dentist, we get a lollipop, everything is surrounded by food. And so I think as adults, when we're stressed and we don't know how to manage our own feelings, we also turn to food. And so I think we see it in the pandemic where everyone was locked in their rooms and they're just overeating because we didn't know the future. We are highly stressed. And while we know it's not good to eat ice cream and pizza and McDonald's, and I think anybody would know that even that eats the standard American diet is not ideal to eat these types of food. I think there's a component that is triggered by our mental health, where we lean on it almost as an escape and an, as an addiction. And it's finding that balance of figuring out how to slowly wean these people off these foods and giving them that grace almost. But, and then I, I agree. I think then once you know, and you have, you are blessed to have this information that food and real meats can really give you healing in your body and that you don't have to struggle with mental health and diabetes, um, then it's a waste if you're not using it, especially if you've been privileged to learn about it. So I fully agree with you. Enormous amount of culture in there. I actually love the term empowerment when people actually start to understand, because you can't do a cultural change unless you're informed and educated. So if you can't, you don't have to do a cultural change and give up sugar and carbs because I said so, but if you (laughs) start to understand how you became addicted to it, if you start to understand the biochemistry, you start to understand the propaganda coming at you. Then you say, oh, that's propaganda over there. That's made up nonsense because it's non-science. Right. And that's and so that that's empowering for people. And when they can do that and then they can see the benefits for themselves, then they will, they'll ignore, they can start to ignore all that other yes. stuff. I, I remembered what I was going to talk about. Um, doing low-carb or keto or eating fresh local seasonal requires time. You know, empty pantry full fridges, Karen's in from New Zealand would say, you know, you've got to go a bit shopping a bit more. You've got to prepare your food. Yeah. Preparing your food with your family and sharing your food with the family is a form of communication. That's good for health. Yeah. And I would often say to the patients, you've got a choice of spending the time now preparing your food. I realise you're time poor, but See, it as a time of communication. I grew up with my with my sister. My mum died when I was very young. My sister and I, my father wouldn't have a washing with dishwasher. He said, that's a good time for you two to communicate. And my sister and I used to fight over the dishes every night, but we were communicating. So around food and food preparation and food cleaning is still commu- family yeah. share time. So I said, you've got a choice of spending that time doing that now or spending that time in my waiting room and becoming a medical tourist. I don't know if you've heard, I made up that term a few years ago, where you've got a choice as a medical tourist. So there's so many people now who go, look at their diary, and go, I've got to go to the doctor on Monday, I've got to go and have a test on Thursday, I've got to go and see the nutritionist, I've got to go and have my feet. But 
So their, their entire calendars are just made up of medical appointments. I call that medical tourism, which is an enormous waste of time. It might be, I mean, I couldn't think of anything more boring than going along and seeing doctors every week, you know. So you've got a choice and therefore let's give people that choice now of actually creating that time improving their metabolic health, improving their own outcomes so they don't have to do the medical tourism down the track. You keep you mentioned mental health a couple of times. I mean, I've, we've got some family stories which I'm not going to share because of the personal side of it, to see the benefits of turning around mental health by improvements in quality of food. And, uh, you know, and it's an area which is being explored. But, again, it's being, it's being spoken to a couple of people about this now. It's being held back from the population because, A, it's challenging paradigms, it's challenging the health professionals, but it's also challenging that whole pharmaceutical control over mental health. And and the, the COVID shutdowns where, you know, where, where everyone was told to be inside, not get vitamin D, not exercise, tr- keep drinking alcohol, eat poorly, is it any wonder that we have seen this enormous explosion in mental health problems in the last couple of years because of a poor nutrition for the body. And I've done, I'm talking vitamin D exercise right. enclosure on top of just nutrition. I interviewed um, a psychiatrist that did studies on microdosing nutrients to instead of using SSRIs for mental health. And then she shared about it on a TED talk. And as much as it has millions of views, her point was there are more benefits of microdosing certain nutrients so that you don't struggle with mental health and taking antidepressants. And we should look into it. And she brings up all these different studies. At the very beginning of the TED talk, they flagged it as possible misinformation that they don't necessarily agree with it. And it's just unfortunate because she's sharing that you can even eat the Mediterranean diet if you want, but if you just eat a very whole foods diet and focused on some meats, obviously, but you can far fare better on your mental health imbalances than if you were to take SSRIs. And even the TED Talk community flagged that. And it's just unfortunate because, I mean, I just saw an article that um, a lot of the kids that were born during the pandemic are having speech and mental health delays. So they're speaking much later. They're much less animated, less emotions because they've been, you know, wearing the mask and covering expressions, which that's how children learn at a very young age. And so it's not just that we were inside. I mean, that was a lot of it. But humans, we thrive with touch and communication, and it's more than just the verbal cues. And so, I mean, I I agree with you. There's a lot of things that happened during the pandemic that are having adverse symptoms. And, you know, alcohol has skyrocketed suicides, uh, mental health, depression, kids in young adolescents, depression has doubled in just two years because of the pandemic. It's in the midst of it all. um, One of our daughters came home. She was pregnant. And I said, just come home, darling. Just come on home. And uh, so We've had uh, at times in the last couple of years eight people in our house plus the dog and the cat. Interesting. It's a good but, thing. But yeah, yeah it, 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 look, it's been an absolute joy having a couple of grandkids run around. There probably wasn't much more than a day or two that went by when one of the, 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 the older one come, Oompa, this is broken. I said, how did that break, Thomas? I <laughs> said, oh, it's just broken. So, you know, it seemed to be doing two years of repair work around the house because of something getting broken. But having family... Again, it's a privilege to yeah. actually have. And some of our kids are not here. They're, they've been caught up in, in lockdown places like Melbourne, and we've seen them stressed. And it's uh, I, I've we're so privileged to have space around us. We've got a farm so kids can go running down, go and check the chickens, see if there are any eggs and whatever. That 
Uh, and so I recognise I'm fortunate, right. but that's part of being fortunate. It gives us an opportunity to continue to speak out and try and remind people that we are fortunate and therefore not just we personally, but we in the Western world without a whole lot of regimes running around telling us what to do. We might have regimes in the corporate world telling us what to do, but we don't have to do what they're telling us to eat. Let's, you know, there, there is hope for the future, but yes. got to, first of all, you've got to start with those people that can actually seize that opportunity and not waste it. I suppose that's probably a, a, a final point there really, isn't it? Yes. Okay, guys, I hope that part one was really eye opening for you as to how we really got to believing that a plant based diet and how we believe that cereal and breakfast is the most important meal of the day has really come about and even how our medical system, how hospitals and how our pharmaceuticals have kind of come into play. This is really important as to why we believe certain things. And once we understand this, then sometimes it can make us challenge what we are starting to see in corporate press, as well as when our doctors are recommending things that in ourselves that we have not seen on a low carb diet. Make sure to stay tuned for part two, as Dr. Fecky and I talk a lot about his research into no fructose and why fructose isn't necessarily ideal. And I even ask him about specifics when it comes to how much fructose is okay in a diet. I hope this, this conversation is giving you more guidance and support into why a low carb diet is ideal. Make sure to eat a lot of meat, take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you later. Bye guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com slash groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.